With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Jen Rubin, and this is Jen Rubin's Green Room. This week's guest, Bill Browder, is a fascinating story of wealth, of power, of murder, of redemption. He was the client who Sergei Magnitsky aimed to help when the Soviet Union was collapsing and the new regime and Putin in particular were grabbing up by handfuls the wealth that had really previously been held by the Russian people or at least the communist regime. He was chased from the country, and the monies and the certificates of the stock that he had accumulated were grabbed by the government. Sergei Magnitsky thought this was wrong and aimed to help Bill. He, however, was himself imprisoned. He was tortured, and he died. Bill was not willing to let the story of Sergei Magnitsky die with him. And he set on a course to really change the way human rights are perceived and how human rights are enforced. And I think you'll agree it's a fascinating story. So here to join us is Bill Browder. Bill, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thank you so much. It's very hard to impress my children and although we've had many interesting and well-known guests, you were the first one who really got a, wow, mom, that's very cool kind of reaction. So you are a rock star among uh, the 20-something set, I will tell you. The fact that your children read is a, is a great tribute to you. Yes, there you go. Yeah, well, you know, we try, we try. Bill, take us back um, to where this began. Um, as the Soviet Union was crumbling, as these huge entities that had been owned by the Soviet state um, were no longer going to be um, owned by the people of Russia, as it were, um, and they were being sold off. Um, Take the story from there and take us up to your meeting and... um, the horrible, horrible murder of Sergei Magnitsky. The original idea when, when, um, uh, when the Soviet Union ended and when Yeltsin, who was the president, took over was they wanted to go from communism to capitalism. And, um, and they, they came up with this interesting, theoretically interesting way of doing that, which was to uh, give everything away to the people of Russia through what they called a mass privatization program. And the logic was that if you give everything away to the people, they become capitalists, they're no longer communists, and off you go. Um, And so they came up with this thing where they started to, um, through different means, get rid of this property that belonged to the state. The problem was that uh, it was totally rigged from the get-go. And so instead of every Russian citizen becoming a capitalist, basically 22 
individual Russians, who we now know as the oligarchs, became the uber-capitalists, and everyone else continued to live in destitute poverty. And that was, the, that was probably the original sin which led us to where we are today. I, got, I had to see it firsthand because uh, I, w- I moved to Russia in 1996. I set up an investment fund called the Hermitage Fund to invest in these shares of these newly privatized companies. And as I described, these 22 oligarchs were getting everything. There were little crumbs that did fall off the table. And those crumbs I could buy in the, in the form of shares of big Russian companies. Um, those companies' shares were very undervalued. I set up this investment fund to invest in them. And for, for, for some period of time, I did pretty well, and my investors did pretty well. Uh, but what I discovered was that these oligarchs, the guys who ended up cornering the market on just about everything, they also owned a majority share of most of the companies that I owned a minority share in as a, just a, a stockholder. And these oligarchs were not nice people. They stole everything they could get their hands on. And so if they, if they owned 50% of the company, they stole 100% of the profits. And so I started to try to challenge them um, on the stealing, to try to stop the stealing. Uh, how did I do that? I, I did research into the, all the different nefarious schemes that they came up with. And then I would share that research with the um, uh, Financial Times and the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post and various other newspapers. Um, and uh, with the idea that if, if I got this information out there, that perhaps something would, would change. And in, indeed, it did change um, for reasons that no one would have expected, which is that, that um, at the time that I was fighting with the oligarchs, Vladimir Putin had just come into power. And he isn't the same, um, he wasn't the same ruthless dictator he is right now. He was actually very powerless because most of the power was held in the hands of the oligarchs. And I've never met Vladimir Putin before, but there's this expression, your enemy's enemy is your friend. And, um, and so um, every time I would put one of these exposés out there about one of these oligarchs, Putin would step in with all guns blazing and then try to shut down whatever the oligarchs were doing, which, which, which was pretty uh, exciting for me at the time because the scam stopped, the share prices went up. Um, Russia seemed like it was on some kind of better trajectory. I even, at the very beginning of Putin's presidency, thought he was a good guy. I thought, hell, this guy is going after these bad guys, the oligarchs. The problem was that Putin really, it wasn't about the oligarchs committing crimes that he didn't like. It was about the oligarchs being more powerful than him. And so he decided um, one day in late 2003 that he was going to win his war with the oligarchs. How did he do that? He arrested the richest oligarch in the country, a man named Mikhail Hordakovsky, who was the owner of an oil company called Yukos. He arrests him, he puts him on trial, and allows the television cameras to come into the courtroom and film the richest man in Russia sitting in a cage. And um, this had a profound effect on the other oligarchs who all uh, went to Putin after Hordakovsky was uh, sentenced to 10 years in prison and said, Vladimir, what do we have to do so we don't sit in the cage? And Putin said, it's real simple, 50%. And that was the moment that Putin became the richest man in the world. And that was the moment that all of my naming and shaming campaigns were no longer welcome. Because instead of naming and shaming Putin's enemies, I was now naming and shaming Putin, or his 50% interests, I should say. And uh, 
in in uh, November of 2005, about a year after Hordakovsky was sentenced, I was traveling back to Russia, having lived there for 10 years. Um, and I was stopped at the border. I was arrested. Um, I was eventually deported and declared a threat to national security. At this point, I pulled all of my people out and, and we were successfully able to get all of our money out. Um, and I thought, well, that's the end of a really dramatic story and a an amazing chapter in my life. Maybe I'll write a book about it someday. Um, uh, but it turns out that I, it wasn't the end of any chapter. It was the beginning of the worst nightmare you could ever imagine. Uh, 18 months after I was expelled, um, my office in Moscow, which I had kept, was raided by 25 police officers. The law firm, the American law firm that I used in Moscow was raided by 25 more police officers. They were all looking for our corporate documents, our stamps, seals, and certificates for our empty investment holding companies because we had sold everything the year before. They found all the documents at my law firm. They um, seized the documents. And then the documents were used in a, in a complex fraud in which um, first they tried to steal all of our money, but our money was safe. But then they, then they went to the tax office. And in the previous year, um, when we sold everything, we had paid, we, we had a billion dollars of profits and we had paid $230 million of taxes to the Russian government. And these um, crooks, the ones that took our documents, uh, used the, the papers they took um, to, to ask for a $230 million illegal tax refund, which they succeeded in getting um, in 24 hours on Christmas Eve 2007. And it was the largest tax refund in the history of Russia. I hired a young lawyer named Sergei Magnitsky, who was the person who figured all this stuff out. He researched it, figured it out, and he was the one who wrote criminal complaints about it to all the different law enforcement agencies. And he was the one who testified against the officials involved. Uh, instead of arresting the people who stole nearly a quarter of a billion dollars of Russian government money, a bunch of corrupt officials arrested Sergei Magnitsky. They arrested him on the 24th of November, 2008. They then started to torture him to get him to withdraw his testimony. They put him in cells with 14 inmates and eight beds and left lights on 24 hours a day to impose sleep deprivation. Uh, they put him in cells with no heat, no window panes in December in Moscow, so nearly, nearly froze to death, in, in cells with no toilet, just a hole in the floor where the sewage would bubble up. The purpose of all this was to get him to withdraw his testimony against the corrupt police officers, and they wanted to get him to sign a false confession to say that he had stolen the $230 million, and he did so on my instruction. And Sergei was a man of incredible integrity, and he refused. And as a result, the torture got worse and worse. The pressure got greater and greater. And after about six months of this, his health started to break down. He started to get terrible pains in his stomach. He lost about 50 pounds. Um, uh, he was diagnosed as having pancreatitis and gallstones and needing an operation, um, which was scheduled for the 1st of August, 2009. A week before the operation, um, they come to him again, ask him to sign a false confession. Again, he refuses. In retaliation, they move him to a maximum security prison called Butyrka, which is considered to be one of the roughest prisons in Russia. And most significantly for Sergei, there was no medical uh, facilities there to treat his pancreatitis and gallstones. At Butyrka, his health goes into a terrible downward spiral. He's in constant agonizing pain. He's desperately pleading and begging for medical attention. He and his lawyers write 20 different 
official requests for medical attention to every, every different branch of the criminal justice system. Every one of those requests was either ignored or denied. And on the night of November 16, 2009, uh, Sergei Magnitsky went into critical condition. On that night, the Butyrka authorities didn't want to have responsibility for him anymore. So they put him in an ice, so they put him in an ambulance, sent him to a different prison across town um, that had a medical wing. But instead of putting him in the emergency room, they put him in an isolation cell. They chained him to a bed and eight riot guards with rubber batons beat Sergei Magnitsky until he died. He was 37 years old. That was November 16, 2009, more than 13, 13 and a half years ago. And um, he left a wife and two children. And Bill, how did you find out that he had died? Did the authorities inform you? Did you find out through his lawyers? How did you learn what had become of him? Well, in, in, when you're in Russian prison, you're, um, uh, you basically have to rely on your relatives to bring food and medicine and whatever else you need, warm socks. Um, and so his, his mother um, was going to, um, went to the previous prison where he was at to deliver food. And she gets to the prison and, uh, and they say, we have no um, prisoner here by that name. And um, she said, no, he was here before. She was here, and she made a big fuss. And eventually they said, oh, well, uh, they moved him uh, to Butyrka, which is this, uh, I mean, they, they, I'm sorry, it's, they moved him to Mitroshka Tishina, which is the other prison. Um, so she goes there and, and, uh, and then she says, uh, uh, you know, I've got some stuff for my son. And they say, I'm sorry, you know, your son is, is dead. Um, and so she then called her lawyer. Her lawyer called another lawyer who worked for us in, in London. He called me, it was 7.30 a.m. on the 17th of November. And it was just the most painful, shocking, horrifying, life-changing news I could have ever gotten. I mean, they basically... He was basically killed as my proxy. If he hadn't been my lawyer, he'd still be working and alive and in good health today. And so for, for me, that was the turning point in my life. I, I made a vow to his memory, to his family, and to myself that I was going to put aside everything else I was doing and focus all of my time, energy, and resources going after the people who killed him to make sure they faced justice. And Bill, I remember a lunch we had um perhaps six months, a year after this, at the Mayflower Hotel in Washington, D.C. And I didn't know who this guy, Bill Browder, was and didn't really know what he wanted, but someone had made the connection. And they said, this guy has this crazy bill that he wants Congress to get hold of. It has to do with human rights. He wants to go after, like, the little guys in the chain. He wants to go after the people who torture people. He wants to go after the enablers. And I said, whoa, this is interesting stuff. And we sat down and you explained it to me. And uh, eventually that notion that you were going to disable the enablers, um, sanction them, take away their rich accounts in European capitals, make it difficult or impossible for their kids to go to fancy schools in Switzerland. Those were the types of incentives that... Uh, you believed, that others believed, and that these people believed would be a disincentive for them to cooperate in human rights abuses. Pick up the story from there and tell us what gave you this insight to go after the people in the chain as opposed to what states had done before then, which is to 
act sanctions on the regime itself, which had been a notoriously ineffective policy, except perhaps with the exception of South Africa. Well, so so after Sergei died, I, I first thought, well, may, maybe there's, it's possible to get justice for him in Russia, because and he'd written everything down. We had a full account of everything, all the torture leading up to his death, and and that became very quickly clear that that was not possible. That the regime circled the wagons; they were going to do everything possible. And Putin personally got involved in the cover-up. He, he personally um, he gave a speech and and uh, set and exonerated every single person who was involved in the in the um, uh, false arrest, torture, and death of, of Sergei Magnitsky. And so it became clear that that we were going to need to get justice. If, if we wanted justice, we're going to have to get it outside of Russia. And then I said, well, how do you get justice outside of, of a country where the murder took place in the country? Um, because, you know, we don't have jurisdiction in the United States or in Great Britain or elsewhere for torture and murder in Russia. And, and then I, I, I looked at this whole thing and I said, well, wait, wait a second. Sergei was killed because he exposed $230 million fraud, a, a massive government corruption scheme. And the people who committed that fraud, they don't keep that money in Russia because it was so easy for them to steal. Why would it be any harder for someone else to steal it from them? They want to keep it in civilized, you know, rule of law, property rights countries. Right. And, and I thought to myself, well, you know, we, we may not be able to prosecute them for torture and murder, but we can certainly make sure that they don't come to our countries and, and uh, spend their money there and, and travel and you know, these people are all going on ski vacations to Aspen and, you know, sending their girlfriends to South Beach and and their parents to the Mayo Clinic. And, you know, why, why should we allow them to, to do that when they're committing these grave crimes? And and and, and I also understood, and, I, and I've seen it, and everybody has seen it who has traveled anywhere in the world, that, that you know, these people, they, they love to, they, they love the, the, you know, the freewheeling, the, the, openness, the, the wonderful life that we have in the West, that they like to steal their money in, their, in Russia, but they, they don't want to keep, be there. They want, they want to be, you know, having all their stuff outside the country. And so that's when I came up with this idea, which is let's freeze their assets and ban their visas. And, and the other thing which I, I thought about, was, which, which is, first of all, it, it would be, it, it was politically impossible to impose sanctions on the whole country of Russia for um, killing Sergei Magnitsky. But why should it be such a heavy lift to sanction the people who killed him? You know, and and my argument when I when I started walking around Washington when when we first met was, I'm not asking the United States to cut off diplomatic relations with Russia. All I'm asking for is not to allow a bunch of crooks who did some torture and killing from coming in, into the country and having bank accounts in the country. And it's a very attractive thing to, to ask for. You know, there, there's no partisanship here. You know who's gonna who's gonna speak out in favor of the Russian torturers? You know why why should they be allowed to? They they have no constituency in America, and and so I took this idea, um, and I, and I took it to to um, two sort of diametrically uh, opposite senators. I took it to um, Senator Benjamin Cardin, who is a liberal Democrat from Maryland, and I took it to Senator John McCain, who is a conservative Republican from Arizona, and. I, I told them the story, the one I've just shared with you and, and the listeners here. And, and I said, can we freeze their assets and ban their visas? And these two senators said, yeah, we can do that. And, um, 
and so it, that's when it started. We all and and um, uh, and then it just took off. And 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 what was interesting was that originally it was a piece of legislation just for Sergei Magnitsky. And when they first put it onto the um, you know proposed law books, um, it just went. The, their phones started lighting up from calls from Moscow saying, "You found the Achilles heel of the Putin regime." You know, they commit, they commit grave crimes in Russia, then they keep their money safe in the West. Can you please sanction the people who killed my husband, my brother, my sister, my aunt? And after about a dozen of these calls, these, these um, senators realized they were onto something much bigger than just the Magnitsky case. And they added about 65 words to the Magnitsky Act that they had written to include all other gross human rights abusers in Russia. And... Um, uh, um, and, and all of a sudden, it, it, you know, everybody else then fanned out across Capitol Hill. It wasn't just me, you know, meeting everybody, but all other victims were coming to Washington and telling their stories. And when it went for a vote, it passed 92 to 4 in the Senate, 89% um, of the House of Representatives. And it became a federal law on December 14th, 2012. My recollection is that the State Department was not thrilled with this idea at the time, that there was a lot of pushback, not because they had any great fondness for Russian torturers, but because this was always a prerogative of the executive branch. We get to decide these things. We get to run the sanction show. What interaction did you have with the administration? How did you bring them around or did they just give up because it was so politically untenable for them to oppose something as uh, really logical and right as your legislation was? Well, so the original, uh, so, so, uh, the, so there, were, there were two big opponents to this law. Uh, um, there was, of course, the Russians, as yes. you would expect. And then there was the Obama administration, as you wouldn't expect, but they were big opponents. Why were, they, why were the Obama people big opponents? And the, the simple answer is um, because uh, uh, Obama had, had sort of started his, his presidency with, um, in, on the foreign policy side with this, this idea of the, what they, they call the Russian reset. He wanted to reset the bad relations that America had with Russia under George W. Bush. And... Um, and his reset was, was this announced policy, very simplistic. And what it meant in, in basic terms was that America was going to just look the other way when Russia did terrible things to their own people. And, and the wonderful thing about Amer the American Constitution is that the legislative branch is a co-equal branch of government to the executive branch. And, and so... Now, of course, the State Department doesn't want anyone meddling in their affairs at all, but this was more than that. They, they really had, like, effectively told the Russians, um, you know, we're not going to, we, we just want to have calm, smooth relations with you, and we're not going to, you know, say awkward things that make things more complicated. And so they were absolutely trying to stymie me at every step of the way towards doing this. And, and the most shocking part of the story was Senator John Kerry. Senator John Kerry... Um, when we were trying to get the Magnitsky Act through, was head of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. The Senate Foreign Relations Committee has to, what they call, mark up a piece of legislation before it goes for a vote. And so he, as the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, had, had absolute dictatorial powers over when any legislation came before his committee. He could decide unilaterally without any, any interference from anyone else. And he was also, at the time, interviewing for a job as Secretary of State. 
And I can't prove that, that, that this conversation took place, but I imagine some t- conversation took place from the Obama administration with John Kerry to say, you know, you'd have a better chance of being Secretary of State if you make sure this thing never sees the light of day. And so all sorts of things went through his committee, but never the Magnitsky Act, even though we had at the time like 40 co-sponsors out of 100 senators just co-sponsoring it before it went for a vote. And it was only um, when, when the uh, U.S. government uh, needed to repeal a, a, a former piece of, leg- or a piece of legislation that had been on the books, which wasn't, which wasn't being used anymore, called the Jackson-Bannock Amendment, which, which they had put in place like many years ago during the Soviet era to, to force the Soviet Union to let Jews out of the country. And it was on the books, but it wasn't active anymore, and, and they needed to take it off the books because it hurt trade. That they came to the Senate and said, could you repeal the Jackson-Bannock Amendment? And then all of my senators who were supporting the Magnitsky Act said, no, we're not going to repeal Jackson-Bannock unless you stop blocking Magnitsky. And at that point, they stopped blocking it. It went through the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, went for a vote. It passed 92 to 4. And, and as much as Obama didn't like it, um, it was, it was veto-proof, and it became a federal law. Senator Cardin, as you may know, has announced his retirement, and I had the pleasure of interviewing him uh, actually right before the announcement. And I asked him, he's had a long storied career of decades in the House and then in the Senate, what his biggest accomplishment was. He didn't miss a beat, and he said it was the Magnitsky Act, um, that that legislation, he thinks, really changed the way America and the world looks at human rights violations. The original bill was about Russia. How did it come to embrace other countries? And then how have you been able to get other countries to pass their own version of the Magnitsky Act? Well, so, so the, the, the day after the Magnitsky Act was passed, Putin went out of his mind, just really out of his mind. It, it was the biggest, the biggest insult, disrespect, that could have ever happened to him. I mean, it, it, everybody is all tiptoeing around him, uh, trying to appease him. And all of a sudden, um, you know, the U.S. Congress has passed a law basically saying you're a crook um, and we're going to freeze your assets and other people's assets who do terrible, crooked things. And that's just the worst possible thing that could happen to him. And also the worst possible thing that could happen to his ability to hold his regime together because if all these, if he can't promise everybody impunity for doing the torturing and the killing, then, then maybe people are not going to like follow through on his orders. And so it really, really upset him that his first reaction was to ban the adoption of Russian orphans by American families. That was, it was a shocking, sadistic thing to do. The orphans that were being adopted were the, the ones that tended to be unhealthy with different types of medical ailments and Americans would bring these orphans home and bring them, nurse them to health and bring them into productive lives. Oftentimes they would die in the Russian orphanage. Putin was killing his own orphans to make a, a sort of dramatic political statement. He, he even explicitly said that repealing the Magnitsky Act was his single largest foreign, foreign policy priority. He put it into a, like a white paper, uh, like a, a, his own foreign policy white paper to describe what he wanted to do. And then, of course, he started going after me 
um, and Sergei Magnitsky's memory and everything connected to that. And, and, and it was interesting because his, his, his really emotional reaction had the exact opposite effect on Senator Cardin and Senator McCain. And they said, well, wait a second, you know, we're really onto something. If this dictator is so upset by this, why, why should any other dictator not be affected by it as well? And that's when they introduced the Global Magnitsky Act. And the Global Magnitsky Act doesn't just target Russian human rights violators. It targets human rights violators, or it has targeted human rights violators in Nicaragua, um, in, in uh, Myanmar, the, in, in China, in Iran, in Venezuela, in all sorts of places. Um, and the, so the Global Magnitsky Act passed in 2016. And, and, uh, but then we have this problem, which is, okay, great, America has the Magnitsky Act. Um, so the bad guys around the world just won't come to America. Um, and, so, uh, and so I tried to get it out in all other countries. And, and there's a lot of sort of, a lot of jealousy, anti-Americanism, all sorts of stuff going on in the world. And so I, I said to myself, you know, it's good that we have this, this um, precedent in America, but we kind of need a place that's not so controversial in other countries. And so I, I focused my energies on Canada. You know, there's people, there's a lot of anti-Americanism in the world. There's no such thing as anti-Canadianism. And, and, uh, um, and I, I must have gone to Ottawa like 25 times. Wow. And, and um, I know that place. I'm, I'm probably like the most experienced foreigner who's ever, <laughs> ever lobbied for a piece of legislation in Canada. Um, and, um, and we got it. It was, it was dramatic. In, in, in um, 2017, the um, Canadian Parliament unanimously, I was there when it happened, and unanimously, wow. um, unanimously passed the Canadian Magnitsky Act. Um, and then once Canada had, had it, then it became much easier everywhere, every place else. And we got Lithuania, Estonia, Latvia, and then the UK signed up for it in 2018. And then we got the European Union to sign up for it in 2020. And then we got the Australians in 2021. In between, we got Iceland, Norway, Kosovo, Montenegro. There are now 35 countries that have the Magnitsky Act around the world that apply to all countries around the world, including Russia, of course. And um, as, as you mentioned with Senator Cardin, it's the most consequential piece of human rights legislation that's, that's ever happened. Um, and it's happened on this, on this broad international basis. And what's been so rewarding for me is that it's kind of picked up its own momentum. I mean, I, I could t- totally disappear right now and it would carry on because ev- there are NGOs across the world who are set up just to, just to like get people sanctioned under Magnitsky Act. There, there are um, and every, every different persecuted group is now um, lobbying for, their, for the persecutors to get Magnitsky. There, there's, there's, there's several countries that st- we still haven't gotten yet. We haven't gotten Japan, New Zealand. Um, Switzerland is still... Um, Switzerland is actually the only country in the world where the parliament actually rejected the Magnitsky Act. I've never very seen... Very Swiss. Very Swiss. The, the bankers for the Nazis, but very, very Swiss. Yeah, very, very much so. So it's now become a, a true global movement, and there's even a verb to Magnitsky someone. Senator Cardin told me something interesting. He said, in case you think this isn't a big deal, they hear from the lawyers for the bad guys who plead with the State Department, plead with the U.S. government, don't put me on the list, don't put me on the list, I'm really not that bad. Keep me off the list. So it does work. Um, these people are 
absolutely incentivized by their ability to do bad things in the Soviet Union, stash their money elsewhere, and then live wonderfully exotic um, and well-financed vacations and lives around the globe. Let me bring us back to the current situation and talk about Vladimir Putin today and the sanctions that the United States and the EU put together, which were were not unlike, if you will, uh, the Magnitsky Act, which went around and freezing bank accounts and seizing monies. Is Vladimir Putin affected by these sanctions? And what's the relationship now between Putin and the oligarchs? Has it been harmed by this experience or are they still tied together because of necessity and a sense of survival? Well, everybody who is subject to these sanctions, I I should point out that the Magnitsky sanctions, the idea of doing individual sanctions, targeted sanctions against individuals, even even though it seems like an absolute no-brainer or so obvious, like why, but no one had ever thought of that before. I mean, or they have, they haven't like ever spent 10 years pushing for it around the world. But once that was in place, um, there, there was, there was, it was sort of obvious when, when the war started that you should just use the same tool. And, and particularly in Russia, because the, the, the top 1,000 people in Russia control all the resources of the country. The, the unfairness of the country that we talked about from the, at the beginning of the conversation, the, the 22 oligarchs, maybe it's expanded out to 1,000 people, but the unfairness of that is terrible, but it's also very handy when it comes to, you know, who do you want to get? If you want to go after the country, you don't have to go after the whole population. You don't have to punish them. You just punish, punish the, all the guys with the politics and the money. And, and, and then, you know, you've, you've really um, targeted the right people. It's like, it's like, you know, sort of targeted uh, cancer treatment where you go after the cancer cells instead of, you know, trying to like practically kill the patient to get rid of the cancer. Um, and so it, it and, and I should point out that, and, and it's my firm belief that the oligarchs continue to half, half of their money continues to belong to Vladimir Putin. And so if you want to sanction Putin, you want to target him, you want to punish him, you punish the oligarchs. And, but, but to, to your second question, what's, what's the relationship like? It's kind of like the, the relationship between the, um, you know, the mafia that, that runs an extortion racket in your neighborhood. Um, Putin is the mafia running the extortion racket. And so there's no love or, respect or, or affection between the store owners and the mafia. They, they just pay their, their extortion money on a, on a monthly basis. And basically nobody in, in Russia is allowed to be rich. There's no such thing as being independently wealthy in Russia. You're dependently wealthy and you're dependent on Vladimir Putin. And at any point he can take your money away, he can take your freedom away, and he can take your life away. And so all these people are basically sitting there just absolutely scared to death of this man. I mean, it's really interesting. I I, I've been going to the World Economic Forum in Davos for many, many years, and um, and I got to see the way the Russians behave at Davos, and and these guys, these oligarchs, behave like the biggest, most sort of uber alpha male on steroids, you know, <laughs> thumping their chest and being arrogant and aggressive and difficult and impossible and sh- horrible um, when they're on their own, and all of a sudden um, Putin comes into the room. And they behave like these like subservient, subordinate little schoolboys, just scared of the of the master. And I mean, it's just you know. So one should never expect that the that the sanctions 
um, are going to make the oligarchs rise up against Putin. That's never going to happen. And nor should one expect that the sanctions are going to make Putin withdraw from Ukraine. If, if we had used sanctions more aggressively and properly after all the other crimes Putin had committed before he went into Ukraine, they could have acted as a deterrent. But, but we gave him every impression that we weren't very serious about holding him to account after he invaded Georgia, after he took Crimea, after he carpet-bombed Syria. We, all, we did nothing. And so that was the time when sanctions could have been a deterrent. Now sanctions have to be a punishment, and the purpose of these sanctions has to be to starve him dry of financial resources to conduct this war. And in that regard, I think we've, you know, we've done a decent job, but, but there's still a lot of stuff unsanctioned, in particular the sale of oil and gas, which is what's funding his economy right now. From your vantage point, what is the state of the Russian economy now? It's obviously been damaged. Um, are the effects of these sanctions felt by ordinary people? Is there additional suffering in Russia because of them? Do they exercise any influence on the regime? Well, I think the sanctions are, are devastating for Russia. So for, first of all, from just looking at the government, so the government lost on the on the day the week the first week of the war they lost uh, 350 billion dollars of their 650 billion dollars of central bank reserves money they held in their effective war chest for the war um, got frozen by the uh, US Federal Reserve the European Central Bank etc we all froze that money so that's the first thing that money is not available to them secondly um, we started freezing all the oligarchs money and so that money is not available to them thirdly we said the Russian government and Russian banks can no longer transact or borrow money from the West. And so they can't borrow any money anymore. So that's just on the very macro level. But on the micro level, you've got a situation where, where like 3,000 Western companies have, have left. You know, if you, if you had a, a Visa or MasterCard, you can't use your credit card anymore. The Russian banks won't let you take, take out more than $100 um, out of your bank if you have, or, or convert rubles to dollars. All flights have been stopped between Russia and the West, you only you you have like four routes out of Russia. You can go to Istanbul, um, Tel Aviv, or Dubai, or maybe Beijing. But um, people can't travel anymore. They can't travel by train. They can, they can't get visas. Um, they can't use Netflix. Um, and then, of course, the economy is 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 suffering. There's no question that it's suffering. And and the, the Russians will have you believe that everything is going fine. The economic numbers are you know they're having a little recession. No big deal. It's they lie. It's a big deal. The whole thing is not going well. And, and so, um, and the average person is seeing it. And the, and the average person is seeing something else, which is everybody knows somebody who's lost a young man in this war. They've lost 250,000 soldiers, according to the Ukrainians, which I believe, 250,000 soldiers, which is 17 times more than the number of soldiers lost in the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. And that's only one and a half years into the, and that was, that was a 10-year war. This is one, only one, one and a half years in. I mean, this is the worst thing that could have ever happened to, to the Russian people, to Russia, and this is all inflicted by Putin. And economically, if they recover, it'll be decades before they restore themselves. There's all kinds of speculation that Putin is sick, Putin is crazy, Putin um, is 
isolated so he doesn't get good information. What's your take on his state of mind, what he knows, what he doesn't know, and what may or may not move him to eventually end this horrific, horrific war? Um, well, let me just say very, very clearly, he's never going to end this war willingly. He, he entered this war um, because he needed a war to prop up his popular support. And by the way, he's used war like three or four times before for the same purpose. Whenever he's, his, his approval ratings are, are flagging, he starts a war. That's, in Georgia, that's what happened. They went up above 80%. And Crimea, that's what happened, went up above 80%. In fact, that's how he became into power. He started a war in Chechnya. Um, his went up above 80%. And he thought that he needed this war, particularly he needed this war because he spent the last 22 years stealing all the money in the country. And you, you can't have people in a, in a supposed democracy, and it's not, but, but people believe it is. You can't steal everyone's money all the time. And so you don't, you have life expectancy, which is like 15 years younger than, than in the West, you know, where people can't, you know, the, the hospitals don't, the, the don't have money, the schools don't have money, the roads are all, you know, big potholes, public services don't work anywhere. Um, you can't do that for 22 years, steal all the money, have it parked in yachts and villas and private jets and not, affect the, not expect the people to one day come and get you. And Putin understands that if, if, if for some reason um, he ever loses power, it's not like he can... Uh, retired to the Putin presidential library in paint, um, he, he, he's going to be you know, strung up from a lamppost um, the moment that he loses power. And so for him, this is, he needs to stay in power and he was worried about the people rising up and the best way to stop people from rising up, as he learned, was to start a war. And we gave him every indication that he could do this and nothing would happen because we, every time he did it before, nothing happened. And so he, he's not crazy. He made a miscalculation and he made a miscalculation, which is our fault for giving him the impression that we would let him get away with it. And, and by the way, you know, our, all of our intelligence services said he'd win this war in three days. His intelligence service said the same thing. He, was, he thought that they would be giving him his, his you know, soldiers flowers as they rolled into Kiev. The only time anyone's given any soldiers flowers was uh, Prigozhin the, from the Wagner Group when they were rolling back from Ukraine to Rostov to take over their military base. So the war is not going well, as you mentioned. Um, 250,000 people have died on their end, at least. Um, great physical cost. If they thought that they were going to get some economic boom from taking over Ukraine, um, it's not happening. What ends the war then? How does this end? And does the Wagner group uprising and the very strange resolution suggest any lessening grip on power that Putin is now experiencing? Well, in my opinion, the Wagner um, day-long rebellion was probably the single most damaging thing to Putin's hold on power that's happened since he's been president. His hold on power is based on the assumption by everybody in the country that he's the dictator, he's ruthless, he'll kill you, you'll, your life will be ruined if you do anything that challenges his power. And he's taken a number of very targeted examples to make everybody think that. And so um, it's, it's a, an aura that he has over the country. And all of a sudden in one day, um, a general, or not a general, a, a sort of mercenary, I should say, and this guy, Yevgeny Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner Group, um, 
for reasons that had nothing to do with Putin. He wasn't fighting with Putin. He was fighting, this was all like corporate politics. You know, he was fighting with the defense minister and the head of the army um, because he was more ruthless and more successful than, than, than they had been because they're all hollowed out by corruption. He was fighting with them. It, it blew up. It escalated. They tried to kill him. He wants to kill them. All of a sudden, it looks like Putin. And then, and then he's marching first to Rostov, take over that military base, and then to Voronezh, and then Lipetsk, and on his way to Moscow. And, and all of a sudden, Putin has to say, stop. You, this is a rebellion. You can't do that. He called it. I mean, he was on TV calling it a rebellion. And, um, and all of a sudden, Putin looks like a, a humiliated little guy, which is, you know, with no power, who's, who, you know, where you have this ruthless guy. Um, and that's the worst thing, you know, for a, for a strongman dictator looks so weak and worthless. And, and normally, and we've seen this in other countries, when, the, when, when somebody attempts a coup and doesn't succeed, you know, the coup leaders, you know, either get their heads chopped off or they, or they get sent to jail for the rest of their lives, along with everybody else close to them. And, and in this case, Prigozhin, who's way too important to chop his head off, He's running all the foreign policy in Africa and of, of, of Russia. He, 17 countries in Africa have Wagner uh, mercenaries effectively running their, their, their army operations. He's in Libya. He's in Syria. He's in Venezuela. They couldn't get rid of Prigozhin. And so you've got a, a mutinous guy who, who, who organized a little mutiny um, who's allowed to have meetings at the Kremlin and, and host... African dictators at the Russia-Africa summit. And, and it's, it's the worst possible look for Putin. When Erdogan, the, the um, uh, president of Turkey, when, they, when there was a coup attempt on him, he went crazy. He arrested like 50,000 people. They're still in jail. Um, that's what dictators do. And so the fact that Putin hasn't done that or hasn't done it yet means either he's, he's kind of opened the barn door now and, and who knows what's going to bolt from it, um, or maybe we just haven't seen it yet. Maybe he's going to go on an almighty purge. I, I, I thought after the day after the, the coup, I might predicted a big purge because that's what a dictator does, and, and it hasn't happened. But one of the, well, something's got to give. You, you can't be a, a strong man and, and stay in place like that. But coming back to the, the question of what's going to end this war, um, the most likely thing that could end this war is if Putin gets overthrown. And because this is Putin's war. I mean, yes, Russians are fighting it. Yes, he's convinced people to be nationalistic and patriotic. But if you, all you have to do is watch the video of Prigozhin saying, uh, you know, this was a, 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 a waste of time. We don't have the resources to do this. It's, it's based on uh, specific interests of, people, of specific individuals. And so this is really Putin's war. Anyone else who t- takes over would say, why, why do we want to do this? Let, let, let's, let's make some money. That, that's what they would say. <laughs> Let's make some money, like, like, like that Putin guy did. Let's make some money. And so the, the best possible end to this war is that Putin is no longer in power. And the best way of getting Putin out of power is to support the Ukrainians, because the more Ukraine wins on the battlefield, the more infighting, backstabbing, second-guessing, and perhaps at some point, total intolerance of Putin's war. And so um, that you know, it doesn't look like the Ukrainians are going to outright win on the battlefield based on the current the performance. And so we have to hope that the Ukrainians can do enough damage to create their own uh, problems inside of Russia. And one of the lessons, of course, of the Putin regime, it was true when you were dealing with it, it's true now, is that a corrupt dictatorial regime is rotten through and through. And this great military they were supposed to have that people admired, were feared of, turns out to be inept 
corrupt, that by putting people who were loyalists in positions of power, he wound up with a bunch of yes-men who simply supported a really bad decision to go into Ukraine. So as you look back on this remarkable stretch of time that you've had and the changes that go on with Russia, what's your final take on the future of the Russian people? They've gone through the czars, they've gone through communism. There was a brief moment where we thought, ah, they've discovered democracy, they're headed to democracy. Now they're essentially run by a mafioso. uh, And uh, it seems like nothing is going to improve for the Russian people. What's your take on the future and whether the Russian people ever attain a decent life, um, peace in their region, and some sense of uh, optimism about the future? Well, um, it's hard to be having any kind of um, positive projections right now. I mean, you have, I mean, sadly, the most likely scenario is that, you know, we're sitting here 10 years from now and Putin is still in power. Um, You know, we saw that, I mean, Assad in Syria, you know, he gassed his people, you know, there was a civil war, we gave him six months and he's still there now. In fact, he's like, you know, um, going to Arab summits and all sorts of stuff like that. So the the still, the most likely scenario um, is that that we're sitting here 10 years from now trying to deal with this guy. And that, 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 what, that, what that doesn't reflect, though, that's the most likely scenario, but there's still, there's, there's a much, much higher chance of some other scenarios playing out. Um, you, you could have the Prigozhin palace coup scenario, um, which has a much higher probability of success now than it did before because everything is so strained there in Russia right now. Um, would that be a disaster? Probably it wouldn't be any more disastrous than where we are right now. So, so Prigozhin... No one can say anything nice about him. He's a murderous thug, you know, terrible man. I mean, they've even, he's even filmed his own snuff films killing soldiers. I mean, it's, it's, he's a really bad guy, but um, he's no, I mean, I don't think he's worse than Putin. I think he's just the same as Putin. He only looks worse because he dresses in army fatigues and does these snuff films. But Putin, you know, if you, if you, if you sort of line up on a spreadsheet, all the terrible stuff that Putin has done and then put all the Prigozhin stuff, it's all pretty much all the same, I think. Um, and the one, the one good thing, if Putin wasn't in power, is I, I don't think that Prigozhin would continue the war. Why would he? he he's got, he, you know, and maybe he didn't want to, like, focus inwardly. So, again, I mean, nothing good to say about Prigozhin. He's a monster. But there is, some, there, there is a possible scenario that's a good scenario. And that is the scenario of, uh, you know, of, the, of the regime cracking, um, of the people saying enough is enough. And when the Russians say enough is enough and they do it on, on mass and they do it from their guts, not from their heads, then everybody is just going to flee. And we saw this starting to happen. Like during the, the, the Prigozhin mutiny day, there was all these private jets loaded up with all these government officials and oligarchs fleeing. And if this were really to happen, then who would the Russian people look to to govern them? They would look to probably someone like Alexei Navalny, Alexei Navalny who's sitting in, in prison right now, or Vladimir Karamurza who's sitting in prison right now, or Ilya Yashin who's sitting in prison right now who were honest Democrat um, people who, want, who wanted a better non-corrupt Russia for the Russian people. And again, they have an exponentially higher chance of coming in than they did before this war started and before 
all this stuff started really unraveling with Prigozhin and so on. But again, it's, a, it's, it's in, in terms of probability, maybe it's 10 or 15%. Um, but these, cha- the, you know, these, these odds change as, as events uh, unfold. Um, and so it's, it's very difficult to be optimistic about the future of Russia, but there is, there, there is, there are, there are scenarios, there are optimistic scenarios which might unexpectedly come to fruition. Well, it's been a fascinating journey, I'm sure, for you, Bill. You've written two fabulous books, which uh, everyone can get. We'll put the titles and the links um, in the show notes so people can go out and get the books. And continued good luck in your quest to go after the bad guys. And that's really what this is about turning the bad guys, disarming the bad guys. Um, and if democratic governments behave responsibly and in united fashion, uh, perhaps they can be disarmed both literally as well as figuratively. So thank you again, Bill. It was wonderful having you. Thank you. And that was Bill Browder. Wow, what a story and what a life. A lot of lessons there to be learned about the ability of democracies that when they get their act together and they apply pressure in the world, whether it's against a murderous thug in Russia or some other country or an entire regime, that we can bring about change. It's also a very good reminder that for all those people who want to emulate the strong men who all those people who admire the Russians and the Russian leader that at bottom they're weak they're corrupt they're ineffectual and that because they surround themselves with yes men they tend to have very bad information make big mistakes and wind up in deep trouble So a lot to be said for the democratic system, despite all of our problems, and a lot to be said by the West finding its moral spine. So lots to think about. Please do get Bill's books. They're fabulous, fabulous read. If you like the show, if you enjoyed it, please tell your friends. They can listen and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever they get their podcasts. Bye-bye.